This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, good morning, RRR listeners. It's uh, Sunday, February 10th, 10am Melbourne time, and that means it's radiotherapy. In your ears for the next hour, I'm Panel Beater, and I'm joined this morning with my esteemed colleagues, Dr. Sharma and Hawkeye. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning. Good morning. This is the first time we've caught up since our farewell episode of last year where we did a year in review. It's been a while, not going to lie. Seems like ages, doesn't it? Yeah. Have you been well over summer? I exercised once. Uh, yeah, I did did a little bit more exercise, but you know my my New Year's been uh, my New Year's Eve, if you like, has been a little bit longer than some because the for life in uh, Melbourne's hospitals, the New Year really just ticked over uh, for the doctors in particular. So this last week, um, except for the brand new babies, so the interns who came in and kind of three or four weeks ago, this week was the week that everything flipped, and so people moved into brand new jobs, uh-huh. the, the residents, registrars, fellows, first-year consultants, everyone kind of started something this week. Um, so it's, a, it's like spring in, you know, spring has, uh, spring in our hospital system. It's a, it's a fun week, really. It, so is it as positive as it sounds? Um, I think it's, uh, it's positive in the sense that people are starting something new and exciting. It's not so positive in the sense that it's a whole lot of admin and orientation right. and you know, learning computer systems and things like that. And I don't know that that stuff could really be so positive or fun. <laughs> um, it just is. But, uh, you know, good luck to everyone in their, uh, in their, know, new, stuff? their, new, uh, their new thing. And good luck to everyone doing an exam next week. What's next week? There's a huge physician's exam coming up, you know. So you remember, if everyone will remember that exam that just went terribly last year, it hit the front pages. Oh, right. You know, it kind of went a little bit like the last US election. Um, yeah. You know, computers doing terrible things um, <laughs> and people's lives being kind of thrown upside down for a few weeks. Uh, so this year they're back to paper. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, take, they're taking a year off technology. We're back to paper. Drag kicking and, and screaming uh, into the 19th century. That's it. That's it. And so good luck to everyone. It's a, it's a big deal, um, you know, but it's not the biggest deal. And however you, uh, however you perform, uh, you know, you'll wake up that night in a cold sweat, even if, you, even if you're the best person, uh, you know, even if you achieve the highest mark. Yeah. Um, do you notice much difference between these newcomers than as recently as you went through it? Much difference. Um, I mean, I think the proportion of postgrads, so the proportion of people oh. who've done something else before is, uh, is increasing. Um, that makes... Uh, that's a change. It's, so people will have done maybe a science degree and then moved into... So all sorts of different things. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, the pathway that... Kind of the almost US-style pathway of doing a pre-med degree, a right. science-like degree, biomedical science, and just rolling on through... You know, that's a proportion of people, but there are also some people who've actually done interesting things with their life. Um, you know, so we've got musicians who decide to be doctors, right. plenty of, you know, a number of uh, teachers who've gone on to become doctors, people who've done all sorts of different things. And it kind of changes things up a little bit. Yeah. I think it's uh, it's challenged traditional kind of timetables and yeah. rosters and things when you suddenly go from having a bunch of kind of 25, 26-year-olds, uh, most of whom have no children, most of whom aren't married, you know, and suddenly now you've got a, a parent of young children doing these jobs right. things change things change somewhat yeah um you know when you've got people who value the life part of work-life balance yeah 
Yeah, the postgrads have been a very welcome change to medicine that way to see people actually prioritise those things just a little bit more than perhaps we did as uh, we came kind of fresh out of medical schools, whatever, 21-year-olds, 22-year-olds. And universities have been restructuring their pathway programs into, into medical programs, haven't they? That's yeah. right, yeah. So I think almost all the main universities have, uh, have are going down the postgraduate way, which has some kind of real consequences. It has a lot of positives, I feel. Um, it, honestly, uh, you look at some of the postgraduate medical students who are, say, second, third year into medical school, I mean, they're just kind of extraordinary. Um, yeah. They are so incredibly motivated. They know exactly why they're there. And I think a lot of that soul-searching that I think I did in medical school as a 17-year-old, was uh, they've kind of got that out of the way. So yeah. it's, it's really fantastic to see. You always do this thing when you're every new year in the hospital, you see the new interns and residents kind of come in, and you're always kind of comparing yourself, like, geez, what was <laughs> These guys are amazing. I wasn't yeah. like this at all when I was an intern. But then that's what it is in the summer of internship is what you project on the outside versus what you feel on the inside and there's always that bit of a discrepancy and everyone's doing okay despite what you feel i'm going to stand up for the school leavers who might be younger and may not you know immediately when you look at people who are younger you don't have as clear an image of them as a doctor in 20 years as a senior doctor because they're not as old yeah but you know they've got some growing up to do and you're allowed (laughs) to grow up you know that's that's part of part of it um so i you know i i'm going to stand up for a lot of the for the school leavers as well it's okay to you know achieve in your career current job you don't have to have you know won a nobel prize before you start your research (laughs) thank god for that (laughs) hey the only other um uh thing that came up over summer since we spoke was the closing date on the opt-out for my health anything cross your radar on that folks yeah uh most of my patients still have absolutely no idea what it is um i every day i'll get some kind of question people will see little uh pamphlets sitting on our reception um, and people wanted to know, have I already got an account? Do I opt out? Is it too late? So what actually is it? And it's there, there are those kind of broad questions. But then there are some really specific questions that I get from patients that make me go, I don't know. And I should know. And we should all know before we kind of signed up to this thing. So it's just this kind of continuing theme where... I think it's going to take a lot of time for, yeah. to, for it to get kind of people's trust. Uh, but, yeah, it's been a bit of a schmuzzle. If you had a like an intuitive guess, would you say most of um, the people you're interacting with, interacting with are opting out or staying in? Or just letting it pass by without even thinking about it, maybe? I, I think a lot of people are letting pass by. And yet when I actually initiate the conversation, uh, most people's instinct is, Ooh, maybe I should hold off for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should opt out for, for now. And it's something they'd like to do at some point. So that's the whole problem with this issue yeah. is it's it's probably a good thing in theory, but none of us really know exactly what it is looking like. It's making people very nervous. Yeah. So people are not like, necessarily completely against it at all. Like, uh, But... I just want to see what it's going to look like. I think that's the case, Dr. Sharp. I, I, I know myself, I left it till the very last minute to make a decision. Mm. I ultimately decided to opt out. So did but I. N- not, not because I've got a conceptual antagonism to the idea, because with my researcher hat on, I like the idea of all that information being collected that can be tapped and stuff. Um, and I think principally it's not such a bad idea if you're moving between doctors and, and you want to remember what medication you had 10 years ago or something. Um but opted out just wanting to see what happens. It's like, you know, I don't know if the analogy completely works, but say a new piece of tech comes out 
um, and you're wondering whether you should update yourself. And you go, no, I'll wait to see how this unfolds and see if there's a whole lot yeah, of drama. Yeah, you want to be the like the second, third lot of people who yeah, get, you know. Yeah. You don't want to be the first dude who got laser eye surgery or whatever. It's like, really? Lasers my eye? I'm going to wait till someone else is being the guinea pig. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but your tech stops working. Your old tech just stops working. You don't have a choice. And if you walk, if you start walking into a doctor's office next, you know, in, within the next couple of years, and you can't actually get to the start line unless you have yeah. this, people are going to jump back on board. I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm playing with fire with my um my phone at the moment. It's effectively a you know tin can and a, bo- and a piece of string at the moment. It's ready for an update. Hey guys, um, today's show. Um, big one ahead. We're dedicating the uh, show to consideration of public health campaigns. Um, we were thinking, um, you know, February, first show back, there's the combination of New Year's resolutions, uh, people doing Feb fast, and then our train of thought took us to all of the different uh, public health campaigns that um, are around from time to time. So we'll be covering off on a, on a bunch of those things. <laughs> Triple R. Oh, Norm, you're not watching the telly again. No, this is educational, Levy. It's all about obesity and how bad it is for you. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't like to catch it. You don't catch obesity, Norm. Huh? How do you get it then? By eating too much, by eating the wrong things, or by not doing any exercise. Oh. Um, what is obesity exactly? It's getting fat, Norm. Oh, when you eat more than you need, the excess energies turn into fat. To avoid obesity, cut down the amount you eat. Choose a balanced diet and include some regular exercise as part of your lifestyle. Obesity reduces your chance of a long and healthy life. So, watch what you eat and exercise regularly. I've just got... Big stomach bones. That's uh, Norm from, uh, oh, I think 1976. I think I think the 25th anniversary was um, just a couple of years ago. Um, Norm, and that was the Life Be In It campaign. Um, and there was a whole series there. We might be able to get ourselves um, a couple more examples before the show's out. You're on uh, Radiotherapy with Dr Sharma. Hawkeye and panel beater, Dr. Sharma. You know, I had not heard that particular ad before. I'd heard the other ones with the jingle and everything, but it's actually almost quite refreshing to hear someone just define something so so directly. I mean, I don't know how much it would have actually changed things necessarily. But well, it was, we just I, reflect, if that's the late 70s talking about obesity, and we know the obesity story today, yeah. you know, it does raise that starting question, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. Um, which I think kind of segues nicely into what I want to discuss. So we are here talking about public health campaigns today. And these are campaigns that uh, tend to be directed towards kind of the larger public because uh, for some reason you know, it, to, to achieve that greater change, it, it's something that can't just be done in the doctor's consultation room or it just needs to be done kind of on a larger level. So, of course, it in, involves things like the Life Be In It campaign or, say, cervical cancer screening or mammograms or prostate checks or raising awareness of, of mental health. And I think we're really conscious of a lot of the, the, the feel-good stories of, uh, around a lot of these uh, public health campaigns and how successful they can be. 
Um, if anything, I think it's a little bit the obvious route. I actually want to talk about sometimes the opposite because, yeah. yes, public health campaigns can be very effective. Sometimes they can be not effective. Uh, they don't really achieve the outcomes that we wish they would give us. Sometimes, even more frustratingly, I think, uh, you can have an entire visible, large public health campaign and you don't even know whether it actually has been effective or not, uh, which makes things very tricky. What kind of direction do you go into future? Uh, and sometimes uh, I find that public health campaigns can be even a little bit kind of counterproductive, a little bit. And I thought I'd kind of kick things off there uh, because uh, being a GP who sees uh, a lot of men for men's health, men's health issues, um, one of the things I think most men would be aware of within the last 15, 20 years is a lot of awareness about prostate cancer, prostate health. And I think you'll all remember uh, up until maybe five, seven, ten years ago, maybe even, uh, all the TV ads telling you to go down to your doctor and get your prostate checked. And in that way, it's a little bit like the uh, the, the food pyramid. It's, all, it's kind of vanished a little bit. The language around that's changed. And long story short, um, through a lot of heavy international analysis of the evidence, we found that yeah, no, not every man needs to get tested for his prostate through blood tests and finger tests, etc. The reason being, it was the over-testing. We were over-identifying people with people who might have prostate cancer uh, when they actually don't, and all the t- over-testing leads to a lot of harm. And it's something that I've certainly seen on the front lines. I see it even today. Um, every week I'll see several men who will come in with the expectation of, I'm here to get my prostate blood test. I'm here to get my prostate checked and you have to play this kind of 10-15 negotiation game of I know you've done something very proactive for your health this is maybe not the best option for you and yet they've come in with this kind of social programming of being told well I need to get my prostate checked I've seen the TV ads I've heard such and such celebrity kind of talk about it and I think it's a really good example of and look I have to say that probably a lot of men hence do actually end up getting these tests through a lot of doctors when they maybe kind of shouldn't, right. as the evidence kind of indicates. And it's, I think it's a really fine example of a very well-intended public health campaign that actually was very successful with its outcomes that it was seeking at the time, but has been a bit counterproductive. And we're still seeing the the overflow, the impact from that kind of now that we're trying to, I guess, redirect or blunt in some way. It's certainly true that awareness doesn't always translate to an impact. And so in this setting, you know, is is uh, I mean, I think there's controversy within medicine mm. about kind of PSA testing the prostate test if you like um, but even then the you know it's quite clear that uh, that you know that there's a difference between awareness uh, which is massively increased around prostate cancer and translation uh, uh, to the bedside um, you know listening to the listening to the the life be in it thing just to just to step back to that for a moment it's quite incredible listening to that you know in in an era of you know they didn't say the word paleo once there was no five two you know we live in this kind of diet obsessed world where you know the economy around diet is just huge you know the market for diets and diet products and you know and food stuff you know is is incredible and back then you know this simple message of you know uh Norm, you're not moving enough and you're eating too much crap. All the wrong things, you know, yeah. uh, Is, you know, a very simple headline yeah. um, that, you know, has been... Everyone's talked about how good the message is and everyone's awareness of Norm and everything has really, you know, hit the mark. Yeah. But we've got more obesity, you know. We've got a major obesity problem in this country and every country, really. Uh, yeah. You know, and sorry, not every country, but, you know, every uh, kind of westernised country like Australia is dealing with massive, uh, you know, massive problems with obesity. And... Uh, 
And yet, you know, everyone's had a public health campaign that, you know, in some respects was, was like life be in it. Well, you used the A word, didn't you, Dr. Sharma, about awareness, or you both did, I think. Both and, did. and um, you know, there's a difference between being aware of something and then acting on that knowledge, isn't there? So it'd be pretty, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who doesn't know that you should eat less, move more type situation, mm. right? And yet we still have an obesity um, issue. Well, I think a lot of this goes back to the the still shared common understanding, which is perhaps a little bit incorrect, of that the information deficit model, the idea being that, well, if people just don't know the right thing and if we tell them the right thing, they'll do the right thing. Uh, and to, I think obviously to an extent that might be true for, for things, issues that are novel, uh, but for something like obesity, I think it's a prime example of... Yeah how more knowledge is clearly not the solution. It may be the solution for some people, maybe part of the solution for some people, but there's, it just goes way beyond awareness. Mm-hmm. And when you don't realise that, when public health campaigns don't realise that, there can be, I think, a lot of waste, uh, and uh, not just of money and time, but actually of, of people's attention, yeah. um, where really the focus should be going somewhere else. For yeah. example, legislation, which is perhaps where we need to think about things like the obesity fight. A, um, a significant um, uh, researcher on um, approaches to uh, public policy analysis takes the position that it's all about the problem identification. And and if, um, say, in this case, um, we look at um, information as being presented as the solution, then clearly the problem has been identified as lack of information, right? Um, and... It may not be the case that people don't know that they should eat less, move more. It may be something else. And therefore, you then can open up conversations whether the real strategy is just getting people participating in community, whether that be community sports or um, whatever it might be um, that generates a culture around activity and good health and so on and so forth. So I think think that's something that's absolutely recognised by people who are experts in public health i don't think i don't think that people who are experts in public health have any are under any illusion that merely providing information uh by itself actually you know has the decisive impact in every case i think uh, you know that if you're an expert in health promotion if you like so our as consumers you know how do we how do we uh, interact we get information so we perceive that health promotion is advertising is information delivery i don't think that's how health promotion experts perceive health promotion they think that you know health literacy if you like health information provision is a is a small part of uh of what's actually required to to generate public health to promote public health then what explains do you think and i'm perhaps got a couple of thoughts myself on this what explains the fact that most public health campaigns are about information well i think a lot of the time like uh, like hawkeye just mentioned the health experts uh, health promotion experts might know what they're doing they're not necessarily people who are deciding the funding or the legislation and that's the the yep. disconnect that i think is going kind of going on here one of the great things about providing information and awareness is how visible it is and if you are someone who needs to look like they know that they look like they're doing something, then yeah. the more visible the effort, the better. Yeah. The more kind of covert things, say some of the uh, the, the kind of le- some legislation or kind of this nudge type in influence that we see in a, in a lot of health promotion that seems to work, isn't perhaps not the most visible kind. It's it's where the politics really 
starts to rear its head, isn't it? You know, so it's it's about um, politicians and whatever persuasion being able to say these are the things we've done. You know, we've generated this campaign on this matter and this campaign on that matter, um, and the evidence is well, you recognise this ad on telly or the radio or whatever it is. Being able to say you've done something, something more amorphous like community activity building and funding, you know, grassroots sports and things like that, um, may be less harder to communicate to the broadest possible electorate rather than just those very specific communities where that funding may have ended up. I think some of the questions that, you know, if, if, you, if you're really uh, forced to consider it, consider it more broadly beyond uh, information, you know, uh, questions that have really been in the too hard basket, they're very, they're, they really challenge some, some of the assumptions that we have. You know, the, the example we were discussing before the show in the green room was, uh, was, you know, the idea of imagine, you know, a young Aboriginal kid living, growing up in a remote community who, you know, hears the message uh, that, you know, that uh, fresh, that good fresh food is, uh, you know, is uh, the key to, you know, long, healthy life. Walks down to the, walks down to the, the one store in town only to discover that there's basically some rotten fruit and vegetables that are being sold for some exorbitant price. And it doesn't take long on Instagram or Facebook or whatever else to see pictures of bills from these shops uh, at the moment. You know, just outrageous kind of uh, yeah. you know prices. And so you know, there's a there's an access question. There's a you know, you actually need more than just uh, than just the knowledge. Then a couple of times we've referred to this idea of effectiveness of the campaign. So with what we've been talking about in mind, how would we set up a metric to decide whether a campaign is effective or not? Well, it really depends on the campaign. For example, sometimes awareness actually is the entire aim. Yeah. Um, say something like mental health, where I think one of the biggest barriers has actually been uh, the okayness to actually talk about it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, as long as we're fairly specific in terms of what the outcome is that we're actually trying to achieve, um, then you know, the, then that's kind of fine. But you need to know what kind of what a win's going to look like before you before you kind of begin uh, that it, battle. Going back to your um, uh, observations around the prostate um, conversations that you have with with um, your patients, you know maybe the effectiveness is that that conversation is taking place even if it's a conversation that you have more often than you'd like it's better would would the argument be that it's better to have that conversation than just not seeing people through the door at all totally which is why uh, a lot of men's health organizations say for example movember they've changed their language completely it is uh, you know, their, their three main things are, you know, kind of testicular cancer, prostate cancer and men's health. And for prostate cancer, it is you need to speak to your doctor mm-hmm. about uh, whether you need a prostate check or, or not. Yep. Uh, and so we, that's kind of the broader aim here, which uh, which actually works quite well. If uh, men who will come to see a doctor for any reason, like that, that's a win for anyone who's a GP who knows what a challenge that can kind of be. So <laughs> it's, uh, no, it's definitely hasn't been a fail by any means yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Wouldn't you know it? Here it is, it's Saturday. Just look at that, I've got a flat on the FJ. Don't worry, Norm. Who's that? It's me, the TV Good Fairy. You will get to the TAV today, Norm. How? You'll walk, son. Walk? I'm, I'm standing. I'm, I'm walking. Norm's, <laughs> 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 Found his way to the TAB by walking. 
You're on Radiotherapy with Dr. Sharma, uh, Hawkeye and Panel Beater. Um, Hawkeye. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, again, just loved hearing from Norm. So it's, there's something so, um, you know, not needing to kind of beat you over the head, not needing to kind of come up with some double entendre or anything, just kind of this straight, straightforward presentation that doesn't really exist anymore in, uh, in that kind of way. And uh, it just occurs to me, uh, watching it back again, I mean, this it, it, for people who haven't seen it, be aware that, um, you know, for the younger members out there, of their community out there, um, these were animations. And this predates Family Guy, uh, Simpsons, and yet I look at Norm and I see a lot of Homer Simpson in, uh, in Norm. It is. It is that prototype of that simple kind of comical looking yeah. like, the figure that you see in The Simpsons, etc. Yeah. I think purists might jump in now. It just occurs to me and they go, what about Fred Flintstone? But anyway... Hawkeye, sorry. All right. Um, so it's just that we were thinking a little bit more about this this idea of health promotion and public health campaigns and some of the uh, some of the uh, the uh, relevant issues. And uh, uh, there's been a highly effective public health campaign that's happened in Washington uh, in the US, so Washington State, as opposed to the District of Columbia. Uh, there's been a measles outbreak, oh. like a big measles outbreak. Oh yeah. And it's dramatically increased uptake of measles vaccine in a huge way in one of the areas in the US that has the lowest vaccine uptake in the entire country. And it's just this fascinating example that, you know, absolutely, there's a, there are some people who, for a range of reasons, most of which I disagree with so strongly, uh, decide, not to, uh, decide not to vaccinate their children and have a genuine belief in, in a whole range of things. There are, there's a much larger group of people who, for many reasons, just haven't done it. Just don't do it. And when the risk changes to them or the people that they love, mm. everything changes. Everything changes. Um, and that might be there's a local outbreak or it might be that you're travelling somewhere where you know there's an outbreak, but everything changes. And so that sense of fear, if you like, for self and you know loved ones, uh, changes everything, and so I'm not suggesting that public health started a measles campaign, a measles outbreak, but uh, but it's incredible to see how effective it was, and certainly far more effective than a whole lot of information about uh, vaccination has been over multiple, you know, over decades to that community. What what approach did they take? What what approach? Yeah. So the approach was that the newspapers wrote about the <laughs> right. measles outbreak, okay. mostly. And that's that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does it does say a lot about how much the the, the Graphics of, uh, uh, of an outbreak can be very persuasive. So they found uh, even when testing out the effectiveness of literature in order to kind of persuade people kind of sitting on the fence about vaccines, um, there's, there's research showing that uh, if you have pamphlets that actually show a child with measles or uh, meningococcal uh, and actually show graphically how bad it is, people are much more persuaded. So, you know, it's sounds terrible to say but to, to that extent kind of fear works but you could very much argue well it's not really you're not really exaggerating anything like this is just the reality of what it is are you is that is that in some way synonymous with the packaging on cigarettes showing people damaged lungs and amputated well, feet i would and- imagine so it's just showing you the direct possible consequences of what's going on i mean i think there is an ethical argument to, to be kind of had there uh but 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 i, I think uh 
th- there's no doubt that without that kind of messaging, people have very vague ideas about what the harms of these behaviours actually can be. Well, it's not going to happen to me. What is this thing, measles? One of the things about measles is the vaccination programs have worked so well, people have no idea what it is and how bad it can get. So if anything, it's just kind of honest to, to kind of remind them, yeah, this is what we're trying to stop. Yeah. Mm, um, I think uh, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's really great demonstration of how kind of people assess risk and think about risk in in some of this um the uh you know and on the other hand people will have been seeing on tv lately uh, a number of ads that suggest talk to your doctor about meningococcal vaccination so there's a, you know a few facts delivered and then talk to your doctor about meningococcal vaccination and uh, it's presented by a um what appears to be a a industry sponsored uh patient advocacy group um and so it's, it's it's kind of a complicated space, really, um, in that Australia has uh, is na- now vaccinated against four strains of uh, of meningococcal, so ACWY at, uh, stand as a standard vaccine at twelve months. It used to only be type C, so uh, meningococcal disease causes really bad brain infection. Okay, can I just yep. um, ask a question yeah, yeah. Uh, from the lay person's point of view? F- you um, mentioned four. Is that a lot? Is that yeah, sure. So, so effectively, you know, the major the major uh, strains causing disease in Australia at the moment are uh, type Y and W, I think, mm. and possibly A a little bit. Um, but um, uh, and we've only historically had a vaccine for type C in Australia, and other vaccines have been have been on the uh, privately available. Um, we're now vaccinating against ACWY because uh, there, there's more disease due to those strains. There's an, also a vaccine against uh, type B um, that's relatively new, very expensive. Most public health systems around the world have, have looked at it and said that, you know, when you tally it all up, you know, we, we, can't, we can't justify spending this much money on that vaccine at this time. And so it, it's, a, you know, it's available as a private product that you can pay for. Um, it uh, causes it can cause really severe disease, but it's uh, it's relatively rare in Australia. Um, and so it seems like the uh, the vaccine maker for this uh, for this particular vaccine is uh, involved in a campaign to increase awareness, if you like, of meningococcal B disease in particular and the availability of this vaccine. And I wonder to what extent that's a that's a, a um, an influence campaign in terms of trying to increase pressure to for it to be a, a publicly funded vaccine. Yeah, in fact, I certainly see it in my consultation room parents will come and asking about this vaccine for, for meningococcal B. It is very costly and it's often the situation that you know, all their kind of friends, etc., have got it. Um, and it's a really tough one when parents are in a, a difficult financial position because, like I said, they're, they're quite expensive to kind of go through the entire course and parents don't want to feel like they're not doing enough for, for their children. So... It, it's you know it kind of raises those questions like you know how much is too much in terms of that pressure to get the, this vaccine when it is quite quite expensive for this thing that is maybe not the commonest strain and cer- certainly for certainly for every parent who's uh, ever had a first child i e every parent um, when you you know this is another baby product um, yeah. I, th- I think it's a more worthwhile baby product than you know than some of the ones that you've been sold wipe warmers and the like um, 
But uh, you know, you're in a, as a consumer, you're certainly at a vulnerable point uh, of your uh, of your life, um, and you know, it's it's just interesting to think of the role of of uh, private industry of a vaccine manufacturer in this in this situation because there's a, essentially an extended negotiation that happens uh, when a new vaccine is released between uh, uh, between public funders and uh, and the vaccine provider in terms of where will the price eventually get to, and uh, and the company would like uh, would like enough pressure on the government that that price is relatively high mm. um, and that they buy early, early and high, and the government would like to would like to find a price that's sustainable. Um, there's a tension because clearly because during that time of negotiation there will be people who suffer from this disease, uh, from this now vaccine preventable disease, and that's a that's a real challenge mm. that uh, is uh, is really hard when you're the when you know people are actually making these decisions in Canberra. Um, but I know the people who make these decisions and, uh, and they're really good people who are making really good decisions for the right reasons. Um, that point that I just made has actually been a more convincing point to some vaccine-hesitant parents than all the information in the world, uh, for what it's worth. That there are good people behind these um, policy moves or these promotional moves or these um, position-taking? That I know, personally know oh, a number right. of them and I implicitly trust them. Yeah, right. Um, so it, I, I just I think it's an interesting space. Um, the other, you know, the other a- area as well, I think, uh, where you get into this sense of risk to me, to others, uh, uh, proximate risk versus distant risk is, uh, you know, in thinking about antibiotic resistance and, you know, all these messages, if you, you don't need antibiotics for your cold and, you know, running against this kind of just-in-case messaging that has been around for a very long time about antibiotics. Oh, you know, my phlegm's a bit green. Uh, it's been going on for a few more days than I'd like. You know, but it's still a cold, you know, and, um, you know, and there's a lot of prescribing in the community is for that syndrome, the, the cold that's lasted a bit longer than it should have, uh, the snot that's a bit greener than it should be, um, but for a patient who's essentially going through an extended cold. Um, we've spoke about antibiotics and resistance on the show um, over a couple of years from time to time. Over summer, you've just uh, prompted my memory. I um, might be being fanciful and overly optimistic, but... I've also noticed that there's increased awareness about gut health in recent times. And as part of the packaging on that information about gut health is to limit your use of antibiotics because the antibiotics might well get rid of the thing that ails you or you think that ails you, but it also happens to be incredibly destructive on all those billions of things that get around in our gut. Of all the health trends that have come in the last two years, this is the one I'm most thankful for right uh because the amount of times that i've managed to co-opt the uh the gut health language to uh to persuade people away from antibiotics is is actually incredible but so it is a fascinating thing going away from oh you might not need this thing to you know this might harm you so when people kind of ask about gut health and i go well yeah it could potentially wipe out some of the good bacteria it's like it's over yeah like that negotiation always just kind of ends there and i mean truth is i'm it's still a very very early science and gut health and gut bacteria but it's funny how that little bit of spin can just change that entire negotiation well it's it's a, a complete shift in the awareness of risk that uh, you know that this, this was uh, that antibiotics for a long time in medicine were considered you know the warm blanket you got on entry to a hospital you know right. or yeah. or you know what you got when you went to a GP if you went to a GP with a you know with an infection of any kind 
and you left without antibiotics, there's a perception, you know, you were unsatisfied. And, uh, you know, and actual, you know, public awareness that these drugs, like all drugs, actually have some side effects has changed that calculation. I think there's a legacy, cultural legacy, about it represents, you know, advanced medical systems. You know, along with anaesthesia, antibiotics were this thing that recognised that we had access to good care, you know, and there might be a bit of a, a bit of a shift there. But even packaging um, is starting to use language like probiotics and prebiotics and things like this, and um, people are getting literate. That's right, yeah. So, and... That's been a very, very powerful thing. Um, I have to say, I practice medicine in a very health literate part of the world, kind of you know, in, in, in a Melbourne, and you'll be surprised how often patients will say things like, you know, do I really need to take antibiotics? And which is fantastic. I mean, that's clearly someone who's responded to learning about the, the, the possible harms of these things. So you know, it kind of goes back to that thing of sometimes awareness is kind of half the battle it's maybe not the whole bottle battle it's not going to influence all behavior but it is part of that mix that we need to achieve to influence behavior uh, so i mean to think about exactly that i think you know the the uptake of influenza vaccine this season compared to last season right. you know last last year in australia oh, sorry in victoria we had a massive flu season and i think there's a lot of awareness related to that and people actually saw it in their in themselves and their loved ones and this year you know massive uptake and so you know another case perhaps where awareness was half the battle um you know, as long as you actually are able to deliver the product. And this year, eventually, we got there in terms of being able to uh, deliver vaccine product. Hawkeye, as our uh, infectious diseases um, man about town, um, are there distinctions to be made between the cases you've spoken of with meningococcal and um, measles with some of the things we hear in the press around... Um, I'm thinking of mad cow and Ebola and dengue and malaria and things like that. So uh, being called an infectious diseases man about town could mean a lot of different things. (laughs) (laughs) It's not your social media handle. Um, That's it. Um, But, um, yeah, uh, a dose of keftriaxin and azithromycin, you know, is is the cure for being an infectious diseases man about town. Um, Sorry, for everyone who just heard that, that's the uh, kind of standard treatment for chlamydia and gonorrhea. Um, So... Uh, yes, I think uh, you know there's there's clearly an intersection between these high profile outbreaks and um, and uh, some of these you know seasonal outbreaks that we see. Um, you know the perception of most uh, of the public is that influenza is a mild illness. Um, that previous outbreaks in recent history were overblown, um, particularly the 2009 so called swine flu uh, pandemic. Uh, for anyone working in a hospital, it absolutely wasn't, um, and. You know, uh, if you we weren't very far in uh, in Australia from uh, being in a kind of an absolute, you know, um, emergency uh, kind of situation. Bird flu um, came in there at one point as well, right? Well, absolutely. I think that yeah, you know, and there's there's this ongoing fear of a of a uh, highly transmissible, highly virulent influenza that is really terrifying to anyone who understands it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, thinking about things like Ebola, um, there's this. There's this real, uh, you know, I, th- I think we've already touched upon it, the, this kind of double, uh, uh, the, sorry, the challenge of uh, awareness, which, is, which we're really happy about, and some sense of proportionality. 
Um, so Ebola comes on the scene and, you know, for people who remember bowling for Columbine, Ebola got the Africanized B treatment. You know, it was this, uh, you know, this, this threat to daily life that was coming from over there and, you know, and the whole health system was, was working hard to protect ourselves against Ebola. You know, clearly a threat, clearly a major threat. But even where Ebola was happening, more people, you know, uh, Ebola led to its biggest impact was the disintegration of the health system in the countries it was in. More people died of, of conditions like malaria in those countries at, during the Ebola epidemic than Ebola and you know and the the way that uh, the way that uh, things can like seasonal influenza can actually be submerged under these you know under these dramatic stories you know the press can't hold keep its attention the media in general can't keep its attention on something for very long so it's not surprising that uh, you know that Ebola uh, you know gets distracted and so we take we take the good side of this kind of gut health stuff you know uh, and um, of kind of microbiome awareness if you like uh, to uh, you know apply it in in our uh, offices uh, and in terms of uh, curtailing unnecessary antibiotic use but there's also a whole lot of rubbish that's related that's related to that that we're just you know that that's the other side of that, and I think we we see that in a lot of different areas. Mm. Um, the you know, and I, th- I think it's it's tempting to go like all in on the latest thing, right. you know, whether or not that's Ebola or whatever it is, you know. But people who are charged with protecting public health, you know, are, are, we're talking about a really challenging and very broad job. There are things that aren't that aren't exciting, aren't dramatic. Uh, but are really, really important. Yeah. I think yeah, one, one of the problems is when you go all in on the fear campaign or you know, any of these kind of more emotive, dramatic uh, things, you can lose control of people's reactions. And when it's out of proportion, people lose perspective on how big that problem is to the detriment of, you know, like other things you mentioned, you know, kind of malaria and other things that might be far more a pressing issue. I mean, one example that... Of, of something like that, perhaps, is uh, you know, is the um, the early nineteen eighties Grim Reaper campaign yeah. about HIV AIDS in Australia, and you know, this is a campaign that I think you know, I think is globally recognised as an un- as a you know a real achievement uh, that that the HIV epidemic uh, uh, its impact in Australia was mitigated in a significant way by that campaign. It was one of the first campaigns that didn't talk about this as if it was a problem that was exclusively homosexual. Yeah, you know, it it was very clear in that ad of of, uh, people being bowled over by the Grim Reaper, yeah. that we were talking about children, we were talking about women, we were talking about men of all different races, that everyone was vulnerable. In a sense, the message at that moment was wear a condom or die. Yeah. It really kind of was the message. And uh, it's hard for us to imagine it these days, but at that moment, it actually was it was the message that people needed to hear. Yep. Um, unfortunately, you know, it, it, it did, it, you know, it... It almost certainly it did feed into that fear, you know. It, it actually added to that fear somewhat, you know. And we're probably still trying to recover from some of that, uh, from a lot of that stigmatization of of uh, HIV and mm. the people and people with HIV. Thanks, Hawkeye. Thanks, Dr. Sharma. Um, you're on radiotherapy. I'm uh, panel beta. We're going to take a uh, short break, and we're back to wrap up the show with some thoughts about um, the role of public health. Um, departments, government, uh, private sector and uh, public campaigning all together. And uh, one more life be in it. Um, we'll be back shortly. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. On telly, I want you to watch, Norm. 
Mm, that's a turn-up. The more or less diet... What you eat has a great effect on your health. The more or less diet encourages you to eat more of those foods that are beneficial to good health and less of those foods that are low in nutrition. Eat more breads and cereals. Eat more breads and cereals. Eat more fruit and vegetables. Eat more fruit and vegetables. And be more active. Are you listening to that, Norm? Sure, sure. I said more, more. Eat less fat, eat less salt, eat less sugar. Eat less fat, eat less salt, eat less sugar. Are you still listening? Yes, yes. What? I said less, less. For a copy of The More or Less Diet, write to The Food and Nutrition Project. That was the uh, last of our uh, Life Be In It campaign ads for the for the episode but there's a a whole suite of them available to you on uh, online if you want to check out some more they're almost timeless the only thing about that, that that last one that we might quibble with was the way fat was treated generically whereas nowadays we probably understand there's differences between good fats and bad fats good fats in your avocados and nuts and bad fats in your saturated palaver otherwise it hasn't dated too badly has it um you're on radiotherapy with hawkeye dr sharma and uh panel beta dr sharma yeah so one of the things i wanted to discuss were the one of the main i guess stakeholders controllers i suppose you can call, say in public health campaigns uh which is the role of government in all of this uh so of course when it comes to health we often think about you know, the patients and the doctors but in reality if things are not supported by legislation and regulation and laws uh it can be difficult to achieve change and so certainly with things like smoking and alcohol and gambling we've seen uh, so much progress but also a lot of controversy as well because I think people can view the government kind of getting involved in these kind of transactions as this kind of completely unnecessary um, you know if I want to smoke why does the government have to get involved it's me and what I want to kind of put in my body uh, and smoking I think is a really fantastic example in in uh, in that the government has got involved in so many ways, everything from the very graphical uh, packaging to the very plain packaging to where you can smoke. Yeah. Um, advertising. Um, advertising yeah. regulation, mm-hmm. everything from TV and movies and, and sporting events, etc. Uh, and I think there's kind of no doubt about the fact that, that it's kind of worked. And yet when we start to people ask uh, similar questions about, well, how about we co-opt those methodologies for say things like obesity we see a lot of those kind of ethical arguments come up again why are you getting between me and what i want to put in my body which uh you know i I can kind of acknowledge that point uh quite often um and yet uh, especially i think when it comes to sugar tax i think that's the kind of context i've really seen it come up in like why should i be kind of having to pay more for this and uh, I, i think one concept that i found that was helpful in order to kind of persuade these people is you know, when you pay for a packet of cigarettes or let's say back, I don't know, 50 years ago, you were paying the cost that, that you know, the company agreed to, but that wasn't really the true cost of what that packet of cigarettes cost because mm. there was also a cost of, you know, on the, the health burden that it kind of cost uh, in terms of what your care took. And it was also the everything to the, you know, say the loss of GDP from the early death that it kind of cost. And Can I just interject there, Dr. Sharma, just with a... Um, um, what, what, it, 
not such a trivial matter, actually, in terms of health economics. Um, there are there are the uh, capital P pragmatic health economists who actually might take a position that early death isn't such a bad thing when you're looking at the the, the national account. It's cheaper, in other words, for people to die as soon after retirement as possible. Well, if it was as narrow as that, sure. Yeah. You know, I guess that that's a discussion we could have if that yeah, was it, a real thing, unfortunately. though. But that's the thing. It's, it goes so much just beyond this kind of quick, painless and economically you know, yeah. like a fa- fantastic death. Yeah. It's the the amputated limb and the you know, the d- depression that it incurs on your family. Sure. So it's all kind of that. Yeah. So I do kind of take that point. Uh, but part of the point is that the fallout from these behaviours, these kind of excessive uh, uh, you know, consumption of, say, alcohol, sugar, gambling, etc., whatever it is, has a fallout in all these wide ways that you can't possibly control and yet everyone still has to pay the cost. You, your family members, the community the taxpayer kind of everyone has to do and so when it comes to say things like uh, a sugar tax the the theory is that well that extra cost you'll be paying on top that's you're now just paying the real cost yeah of what these behaviors kind of incur and uh and it's it's a form of kind of signaling so so you kind of understand what's Uh, you're paying exactly what you should be uh, in terms of the damage it's kind of causing. And I think it's actually quite an effective thing to do. So the language WHO uses when they talk about health promotion and this point is they talk about good governance and they say they talk about policies supported by regulations that match private sector incentives with public health goals. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and but and this is where certain members. Um, I'll take the contrarian position. I'll, I'll be the black hat in the room. Um, the contrarian position being, well, this is the nanny state. You know, there's this is moralising, um, and that moralising isn't reasonable. You know, as as you have alluded to, you know, it, it's my independent individual um, choice to decide what I put in my mouth how I live my life and, and so on and so forth. So that anything, any time the government is telling me I should be doing this or shouldn't be, shouldn't be doing that, or in, particularly if they're going to tax me for making choices, um, that, that's out of order is, is their position. Yeah, yeah, and to that I guess I'd say the choice might be individual, but the consequences are not. The consequences are felt by far many more people. And if there was a way that we could somehow funnel the consequences down to the person making the decision, like, sure, but that's just not the reality of all these issues that pertain to public health. And so that's just an understanding that we have to develop. It kind of comes back so much to, 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 to risk. Uh, it's, you, you, it's not just yourself that you're putting at risk. It's kind of everyone uh, around you, irrevocably, despite what your intentions might actually be. And that's what it means to live in a society, to understand that there are consequences that go beyond just you. And that comes with a lot of responsibility and you know, kind of paying for that responsibility in whatever way. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. Thank you.